Welcome to Anchor Point, where we believe that the next 30 minutes could change your life forever. So join us to consider the greatest message ever heard, the good news of the gospel, as well as sound scriptural teaching for believers, all based on the Word of God, the anchor for our souls. In our broadcast today, evangelist and teacher Eugene Higgins opens up John chapter 10 to expound the gospel truth as he looks at the true shepherd of the sheep who made himself the door of salvation for poor sinners. There are many ways to handle the complexities of life, many ways of looking at or trying to make sense of the world around us. There's polytheism, secularism, humanism, and postmodernism, to name a few and Mr. Higgins looks briefly at what these philosophies have to offer. But then he turns to what the Bible says about the ultimate need and who alone is able to meet it, and how simple the gospel message is. The Lord Jesus Christ came to provide forgiveness for sins and eternal life that sinners need. The sinner enters through Christ, the door, and receives God's free offer, and the result is he can never lose his salvation. We trust that you will listen attentively as Mr. Higgins explains further. The Gospel of John, chapter 10, and we'll read verse 1. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that entereth not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbeth up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. So very simply put, he who claims he has come to meet the need of lost sheep, but does not come through this door, which we'll find out about in a minute, is nothing but a pretender. He that entereth in by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. So this is a door that the shepherd enters, that the Savior enters. To him the porter openeth, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calleth his own sheep by name, and leadeth them out. And when he putteth forth his own sheep, he goeth before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. And a stranger will they not follow, but will flee from him, for they know not the voice of strangers. This parable spake Jesus unto them, but they understood not what things they were which he spake unto them. Then said Jesus unto them again, Verily, verily, I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. So we read about the door of the sheepfold. I am the door of the sheep. All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. So the chapter opened with a door that the shepherd comes through. But now it's speaking about a door that sinners go through, that sheep go through. The thief, verse 10, cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. But he that is an hireling and not the shepherd, whose own the sheep are not, seeth the wolf coming and leaveth the sheep and fleeth. And the wolf catcheth them and scattereth the sheep. The hireling fleeth because he is an hireling and careth not for the sheep. I am the good shepherd and know my sheep and have known of mine as the father knoweth me. Even so know I the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring and they shall hear my voice and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Therefore doth my father love me because I lay down my life that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me 
but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my father. There was a division, therefore, again among the Jews for these sayings. And many of them said, He hath a devil and is mad. Why hear ye him? Others said, These are not the words of him that hath a devil. Can a devil open the eyes of the blind? And it was at Jerusalem, the feast of the dedication, and it was winter. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Then came the Jews round about him and said unto him, How long dost thou make us to doubt? If thou be the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and ye believe not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man, any one, pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Now tonight we want to consider whether there is really any meaningful life before death, any real, true life in this world. I remember reading about one woman who, when she heard that she was dying, she was weeping in her bed at the hospital, and the nurse came to try to comfort her, and her very poignant and memorable words to the nurse were, I'm not crying because I'm going to die. She said, I'm crying because I've never lived. And there are millions upon millions of people who have never really lived. The first part of this meeting, I'd like to tell you where it's not found. Broadly speaking, it might be helpful to consider that there are four ways that life can be lived in this world. You can live as though there were many gods. This is called polytheism. You can live as though there were no god or gods. This involves secularism and atheism. You can live as though the fact of whether there were a god or not makes no difference in your life, that as far as you are concerned, you are the only God there is. You're in charge, and this is akin to modernism and especially postmodernism. Or you can live as though there is a supreme being called God. For the sake of time, I will omit discussing those who believe in a God other than the Father of our Lord Jesus. Rather, we'll focus on those who say they have a living relationship with God, what the Bible describes as being saved or being born again or being forgiven or having eternal life. That is called Christianity. In any situation, if somebody suggests a course of action for you to take, you would be wise to think it through and see where it leads. Similarly, it is beneficial to see where these varied beliefs lead. Again, this does not prove a belief is true, but you would expect that truth would have a positive rather than a deleterious effect on a person's life. Since we'll consider the fourth option, Christianity, at the close of the meeting, here are thoughts on the first three. We'll start with polytheism. One of the problems with polytheism is that the concepts of all those gods stem from human invention and ideation. There is no objective revelation of what these gods are like. Often, they are conceived as being just like us, only on a mammoth scale. They have the same likes and loves and lusts and failures and foibles and follies of humans, only magnified many times over. Keeping all these gods happy is a huge task that often involves a rather unpleasant side effect the need to kill. That's especially unpleasant if you are the kill e and not the killer. Here's a description of the degradation that the Spaniards found in the New World prior to any Christian influence. In Ripley's Believe It or Not Wonder Book of Strange Facts, he records that there is a carved circular stone about seven feet across found in the National Museum in Mexico City. Ripley says of this stone, it is the bloodiest spot on earth. It is the sacrificial stone of the Aztecs. And on that stone, more than one million human beings 
had their hearts cut out. So one spot, one stone, one million. Although the ancient Aztecs, now this is what he goes on to say, which is remarkable. Although the ancient Aztecs were a comparatively mild and peaceful people with a sense of brotherly love and charity and attained a high degree of civilization. Uh, he's talking about people that ripped your hearts out. Their, their great sense of brotherly love and charity, a high degree of civilization. But he says they believed in this thing called human sacrifice. On great occasions, such as the crowning of a king or the dedication of a temple, men were slaughtered by the thousands. Six years before Columbus came to America, the temple of the war god was consecrated. The prisoners who for several years had been held in reserve for just this festival were arranged in files forming a procession nearly two miles long. The long line slowly walked to their death, marking time to the shrieks of the dying as they were bent naked on this stone and their hearts were torn from their bodies. It required four days to finish the slaughter, polytheism, secularism. This quote is from The Devil's Delusion by the brilliant David Berlinski. He said, In the early days of the German advance into Eastern Europe, before the possibility of Soviet retribution even entered their untroubled imagination, Nazi extermination squads would sweep into villages, and after forcing villagers to dig their own graves, they would murder their victims with machine guns. One such occasion, somewhere in Eastern Europe, an SS officer watched languidly his machine gun cradled as an elderly and bearded Hasidic Jew laboriously dug what he knew would be his own grave. Standing up straight, he addressed his executioner. He said, God is watching what you are doing. The Nazi official shot him. Berlinski went on to say, what Hitler did not believe, and what Stalin did not believe, and what Mao Zedong did not believe, and what the SS did not believe, and what the Gestapo did not believe, and what the NKVD did not believe, and what the commissars, functionaries, swaggering executioners, Nazi doctors, Communist Party theoreticians, intellectuals, brown shirts, black shirts, gall lighters, and a thousand party hacks did not believe was that God was watching what they were doing. As far as we can tell, few of those carrying out the horrors of the 20th century worried over much that God was watching what they were doing. That is, after all, the meaning of a secular society. And those who believed in a secular society slaughtered 160 million human beings in the 20th century, making it one of, if not the bloodiest centuries of all time. Atheism. Since we've already noted in these meetings the racism, ethnic cleansing, and genocidal behavior spawned by the theory of evolution and atheism, let's approach this from a different angle. Someone has put it this way. Every worldview is a proposed map of reality. It is a guide to navigating in the world. One effective test of any truth claim, therefore, is to ask whether we can live by it. If you follow a map and you keep splashing into rivers or crashing off cliffs, you could be quite sure something is wrong with the map. Chuck Colson went on to say, by the same token, if you live according to a certain worldview, but keep bumping up against reality in painful ways, you can be sure something is wrong with your worldview. It fails to reflect reality accurately. So let's apply this test to the naturalistic worldview of the well-known science popularizer, Carl Sagan. Sagan literally canonized the cosmos, openly plugging his personal philosophy on his popular television program. And far from repudiating this transformation of science into a religion, the scientific establishment richly rewarded him, even awarding him the National Academy of Sciences Public Welfare Medal in 1994. One consequence of Sagan's religion of the cosmos was that he was actively committed to the cause of animal rights, and quite logically so. For if humans evolved from the beasts, there can be no intrinsic difference between them and us. It would be just as cruel and immoral to kill a cow as to murder a person. In my writings, 
Sagan said in a Parade magazine article. I have tried to show how closely related we are to other animals, how cruel it is to gratuitously inflict pain on them. As a result, he was adamantly opposed to using animals for medical research. For if animals have the same value as humans, how can we justify expending their lives to save humans? So, of course, what this means is if you were in danger and saving you involved the death of an animal, Sagan would have a hard time knowing what to do, would probably say it was nice knowing you. But on this issue, Sagan bumped up against reality in a very painful way. In 1994, he discovered that he had myelodysplasia, a rare blood disease. With possibly just months to live, he was told that his only chance for survival was an experimental bone marrow transplant. But there was one catch. The procedure that might save his life had been developed by research on animals, the kind of research Sagan passionately opposed. Sagan faced an excruciating dilemma. Should he remain true to his naturalistic philosophy and reject the marrow graft as something acquired by immoral means? Or should he agree to undergo the medical treatment in hope of saving his life? Though it meant acting in contradiction to his moral convictions, Sagan did not take long to reach a decision. He underwent three bone marrow treatments, which did extend his life for a time, though he ultimately succumbed to the disease and died in 1996. At the time, Sagan wrote in an article that he was very conflicted over the choice he had to make. He recognized clearly that his decision to accept the treatment was a practical denial of his naturalistic worldview. But when he came up against reality... He abandoned his naturalistic roadmap, and whether he admitted it or not, he implicitly shifted to the biblical roadmap, which says humans do have a value transcending that of plants and animals. Modernism and postmodernism, though they are different, they agree on two crucial points regarding God and man, so just allow me for the sake of time to refer to them together. Jean-Paul Sartre, who was the guru of the 60s, fanned the existentialist flame of that era. His most enduring mistress... Uh, Simone de Beauvier said that the slogan from his mindset that most enthused her was, it is forbidden to forbid. Through his writings, he became the academic godfather to many terrorist movements on the cutting edge of oppression in that decade. Paul Johnson, the noted historian, said this about Sartre. What he did not foresee, and what a wiser man would have foreseen, was that most of the violence to which he gave philosophical encouragement would be inflicted by blacks, not on whites, but on other blacks. He contributed to the civil wars and mass murders that engulfed the continent of Africa from the mid-60s onward. The hideous crimes committed in Cambodia from April 1975 on, which involved the deaths of between a fifth and a third of the population, were organized by a group of Francophone middle-class intellectuals known as the Higher Organization, or if I can pronounce it correctly, the Ankalue. Of its eight leaders... Five were teachers. Now I'm talking about murderers. Of its eight leaders, five were teachers. One was a university professor. One was a civil servant. And one was an economist. All of them had studied in France in the 1950s where they had not only belonged to the Communist Party, but had absorbed Sartre's doctrines of philosophical activism and what he called necessary violence. These mass murderers were his ideological children. Now, please do not misunderstand me. I'm not saying that everybody who believes these things is guilty of the same atrocities. I am merely showing what is the logical conclusion of these philosophies, where the roadmap leads. And when so-called Christians have practiced violence, immorality, or dishonesty, they have had to do it in direct violation of what Christianity teaches. 
Tragically, the denial of God leads to the diminishing of mankind. The denial of God leads to the diminishing of human beings. Rather than elevating humans, these non-Christian beliefs strip humans of all the God-given dignity that special creation bestowed on them. Life is cheapened. It becomes eminently expendable, like Lenin saying he wasn't going to make the same mistake the French made in their revolution. He would make sure he killed enough people to accomplish his goals. The forlorn emptiness of life that accompanies separation from God has been witnessed again and again. You're not going to find it there. You're not going to find it in the philosophies floating around out there. It's already been tried, and it's already been proved it doesn't work. You're not going to be any different than all of the tens of thousands of other people who thought, I found it. It's yoga. It's transcendental meditation. It's atheism. It's agnosticism. It's There's one place you're going to find real life, and that's in the Lord Jesus. He is the life. He came to provide that life for you. And what I would like to do is just take up these simple points, just three of them that uh, hopefully will be a help to us all. The first is that the Lord Jesus came to provide this life for you. He came to provide this life. That a sinner enters the door to receive this life. And third, that God promises that if you do that, you'll never lose this life. So this is a pretty attractive thing. When the Lord Jesus came to provide it, when it's being offered freely to you tonight, and when if you receive it, you will never lose it. Because there's not another thing in your life that you can say you'll never lose, is there? Your car, your house, never lose it. Your bank account, your money. Here is something that you can never lose. There is a shepherd who came to provide this light. And he says he came through the door. That door reminds us of the prophecies that foretold his coming. The ancient prophecies in the Bible that foretold his coming. Scripture foretold that the Lord Jesus would come and, and the prophecies narrowed the field down to just one possibility in all of history. That if you take the details that we are given in the Bible of the person that would be the Messiah, in all of human history, there is only one person who met the criteria, who matched the description, just one person. You say, well, what he did is he arranged things. He found out he was born in Bethlehem when he got a little older, so he arranged things to make it sound like he was the Messiah. Could he arrange how his enemies would kill him? Could he arrange what they would do to him? Could he arrange the fulfillment of countless prophecies? When you're reading through the Bible, you find that first of all, first of all, we understand that the Messiah would be the seed of a woman, not of a man. Then we find it would be from the nation of Israel then from the tribe of Judah, then from the family of David. Watch it narrowing. Then he would be born in Bethlehem. Somebody has said that there are five pieces of information that eliminate every other person in the world, billions of people, and match you. Five. Name, address, town, state, and zip code. There might be somebody else with the same name as you. There might even be somebody else living on the same block as you, but he's not going to have the same house address, is he? Name, address, town, State, zip, and billions of people have been eliminated and we find you. And if the mailman is a decent mailman, the letter comes to you because of those five pieces of information that were on a, the front of an envelope. We are given countless reams of information about the, who the Messiah would be. Do you realize it would be, not virtually, it was impossible, mathematically speaking, for ancient prophets to somehow have colluded and have pieced together a description of who the Messiah would be, and then for some man to make those prophecies be fulfilled in him. Impossible. No, he came through that door to prove who he was. And the recognizable call, because he's not calling you into a religion. He's calling people out from all the human organized religions and calling them out to himself. 
So his coming involved these prophecies that would be fulfilled. And he tells us the purpose in coming. And this involved the death. We would think his coming would be to reign, ought to be to reign. But he said he came to die. He came to give his life. He talks about the thief and the hireling and the wolf. He describes their aims. They are completely different from his. He tells us, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. You ever think of the sacrifice that was involved? That he laid down his life, that he gave his life. He said, no one takes my life from me. It was impossible for them to kill Jesus. He had to willingly lay down his life. He willingly laid down his life for you. I give my life, he said, for the sheep. He sacrificed himself. We are reminded that there was suffering involved. When they were done driving the nails through his hands and feet, when that was all done, excruciating beyond all language to describe, when that was done, then the real agony would begin because a sword would be drawn. Metaphorically, a sword would be drawn, wielded by the arm of the Almighty. And on that cross, that shepherd would be smitten, would be struck. The downward thrust of that sword with all of the power of God's arm behind it, punishing Jesus so that God would not have to punish you. Please understand that God and his son worked in concert in this. God didn't force Jesus to die. He died because he loves you. Jesus didn't force God to punish him. God did it because he loves you. And the remarkable thing is that the son whom he loved so greatly, he was willing to sacrifice that son, that the Lord Jesus was willing to lay down his life and go through suffering that will never be equaled because he came to give his life for the sheep. Notice the sequel, because he tells it, lay down my life that I might take it again. I love the description. Let me read it to you. I love the description that Charles Spurgeon gave us at Calvary. He said, Christ's love was so strong that he took the cup in both his hands and at one tremendous draft of love, he drank damnation dry. Got that? He drank damnation dry. He drank it all. He endured it all. He suffered all so that now forever there are no flames of hell for those who trust him. No racks of torment. They have no eternal woes. Christ suffered all that they ought to have suffered and they must. They shall go free because the work was completely done by himself without a helper. Every person who trusts that shepherd is saved because he came to give his life to save you. He came to provide the life that you need. But he tells us that you need to come to him to get that life. And he says it's like walking through a door. He says, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved. Yes, it's a valid question. Is there life before death? Are we all doomed to a purposeless, confused, and frustrating existence before finally we leave this scene? Some of our modern philosophies really have little else to offer. To pursue them is useless endeavor. No meaningful answers will ever be found at the end of those roads. Open your Bible. Turn to John chapter 10 if you like and read about the door of salvation, the door of eternal life. It's a person, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Placing your faith in this trustworthy person is your only sensible response when you come to know who he truly is. If this or any of our Bible messages here at Anchor Point has made you aware of God's interest in you, 
or if you'd like some literature or a visit that would help you to understand these important truths, why don't you drop us a line at email at anchorpointradio.com. We'd love to hear from you. We're glad that you were able to join us at Anchor Point today. Anchor Point is sponsored by Christians who are meeting in various gospel halls. Each of these Christian assemblies holds gospel services every Sunday night, as well as regular prayer and Bible studies throughout the week. No collection is ever taken, and a very warm welcome awaits you. And if you've been challenged by today's message, would like to know more about the truth of the gospel, or of gathering under the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, following New Testament principles, please feel free to check out our website at anchorpointradio.com. There you will find more information, as well as the location, programs, and meeting schedules for the Gospel Hall nearest you. Also, feel free to take a look at other literature and audio offers at anchorpointradio.com, where you can also subscribe to our Anchor Point podcast. My name is John Sharp, and thank you once again for listening, and we invite you to join us again next week at the same time for Anchor Point, where we believe that in times like these, you need a Savior, and in times like these, you need an anchor.